HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. We're at 261 Moore Street, and I am welcoming today <coughs> Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, Democrat of the great state of Maine. Uh, Congresswoman Pingree served as the state senator from 1992 to 2000 and subsequently was elected to Congress in 2008, where she has sponsored legislation that ranges from evaluating disability compensation to veterans to increasing access to certified midwives, in addition to her initiatives around farming, food, and school nutrition. Welcome to the program, uh, Congresswoman Pingree. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to join you. Oh, thanks so much for, for taking time out of your day. I know how busy you are. Um, so the thing that, that got me going about you was um, I saw on one of the many trade blogs that I read um, that you had introduced a piece of legislation to Congress just recently the be- in the beginning of November, I think it was, called the Local Food, Farms, and Jobs Act. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, absolutely. I um, I was really trying to respond to the tremendous interest that's out there, whether it's from consumers who want to buy more food locally, they want to know what's in their food and that they're eating healthy food, um, young people who want to go into farming today and have more opportunities, farmers who are already involved in farming but they want to have more um, uh, venues for selling their produce or more infrastructure to process their produce. I mean, there just is such a tremendous amount of need out there. And our agricultural policy, frankly, has been going in the opposite direction for the last 30 or 40 years. So I see this as an opportunity with a, another farm bill reauthorization coming up to say, let's do some things that bring our agricultural policy more in line to what consumers farmers and communities are looking for, and that's really how we wrote this title to the Farm Bill. Absolutely fabulous. Now, does Maine itself have the processing and distribution systems that you, you know, that any state would need to get local food into the marketplace outside of farmers markets? Or if not, what, what will you guys need to develop those essential systems? Well, we're like a lot of states um, that were, you know, agricultural, um, maybe even as 
recently as 40 or 50 years ago, and we still have a fairly large agricultural segment, but it's become um, stratified into a couple of different prominent crops, and a lot of the network that was out there, whether it was slaughterhouses for small farmers being able to take their their animals to slaughter, um, canning and processing factories for vegetables and other produce, um, they've either disappeared or become greatly diminished um, uh, you know, overall. But in the last, say, 10 years, we've seen a real resurgence of interest, both on the part of the consumers who want to come to the farmers' markets. Farmers' markets themselves are growing. Many of them are you know, sold out on space, and farmers are looking for more venues to be able to sell their produce. And um, you know, we're seeing, because of the huge demand on people, for instance, who want to buy locally grown meat, we don't have enough slaughterhouses available. So mm-hmm. we could speak to our own need as a place where um, you know, we think of ourselves as somewhat of a foodie state and a food production state. Um, we're not that far from where we were. Um, you know, 40 and 50 years ago, but yet we don't have enough to meet the capacity. And we know that's true in places all over the country. Absolutely. I mean, you, you share the same problems, I think, as almost every state, um, with maybe different uh, emphases on different in, different industries or different crops. But um, it's it's all we all have the same problem. Um, one of the things that you've done, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that you've done is connect the local school system to local farms. And how did you do that? Because that, that seems to be a real big problem here in New York State, um, where we've, you know, people, activists have been working very hard to try to get New York City schools online with, with New York State farms. And it's, it's just the procurement process just has not made it easy for farmers to participate. How have you managed to do that? And what were the challenges that you faced? Well, we actually have language in our bill to change more of the process. Um, as you say, it's been very difficult for schools that want to buy more food locally, and there are several challenges. We have some language that allows them to use some of their commodity funding money um, and direct it towards buying local foods. Commodity foods are those you know big things that come in cans and are made mostly in the Midwest and are mm-hmm. easy um, you know, to dump out the can, heat it up, and feed it to the kids, but not necessarily what we want to be seeing our kids eating. So... We change the way some of the funding stream works, makes it make it easier for local school departments to have the funds to buy food locally. But it is a big challenge. Um, we find many school f- food service people actually are anxious to get more healthy and local food into the um, into the kitchen and into the um, school lunch program. But it's by and large more expensive because those foods aren't subsidized. Many kitchens today in school cafeterias are no longer real kitchens. They're just places where they take the food in off of trays and refeed it to our kids. I always say your grandmother would be horrified um, to come in and look at a school lunch program today because she still thinks your grandchildren come in and they eat meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and green beans. <laughs> and frankly, they may be eating out of a vending machine, lots of carbohydrates, lots of processed foods. Um, and by and large, that's not the way parents want it to go. So. We've tried to change some of the funding, and I have to say some of the school departments that have been um, doing a great job in Maine have very activist food service directors. A few of them got into a pilot project um, that the USDA supported several years ago, and they're still operating out of that, but that allowed them to buy more kitchen equipment, refrigerators, steamers, knives, things that they just didn't have, and also to uh, procure more food locally. I'll tell you one little story. I mean, the thing that I like best about visiting school cafeterias where they are trying to do more with local food. Many of them have a little garden out behind the school so kids can participate in the actual growing or they visit the farms. I sat down with a group of middle school kids a couple of months ago who had a little greenhouse attached to their school. They'd been learning how plants grow, and that day they had sautéed kale with garlic on the menu. And most people would say, oh, no middle school kid's going to eat kale and garlic. Well, they were ch- 
chomping it down, telling me how they were telling their parents to buy this when they got home. I mean, kids have a great palate. We just don't give them opportunities when they're young to develop that palate and to develop eating habits that are healthy. And so this is a great opportunity, and it, it, it's going to take a little bit of a revolution to change it. But, again, <laughs> consumers and parents are on our sides, and farmers are looking for those markets to sell more locally. So Most definitely. And do you think that um, the Farm Bill, which subsidizes school lunch programs, is going to allocate more funds towards, say, it, you know, never mind buying equipment for kitchens, but also training the personnel? Because right now they're not trained in cooking. So how Absolutely. Those are all uh, factors that we've been pushing on mm-hmm. um, and uh, see as a critical need to make it possible for, again, the school departments that want to do this uh, to be able to do more of it. The truth is many of them are just facing, you know, ever-tightening budgets, and they say even if we want to do more of it, the resources aren't there. So we're trying to um, bring those resources to bear and change some of this policy. But, um, you know, I think you know and your listeners know change doesn't come easy, and um, we have moved in the wrong direction for a long time in food policy in this country, and we're trying to undo something that's, um, you know, got a lot of giant industries behind it. Well, I think that's the scariest part of it is the um, the stranglehold that uh, big you know big food, for lack of a better word, um, although it's brought us lots of really cheap food, has not always um, brought us the best food. And I think it's really hard to separate out the politics and the and the um, the PACs basically that support um, politicians uh, who support their ideas. And I, I think you know you've definitely got an uphill battle with that. <laughs> No doubt about that. Um, and actually, that makes me want to ask you a personal question, which was, how did you get so involved and interested in this? I mean, I read your bio, and it was, you know, most interesting. And I thought you had, you know, you've obviously had experience working in farms and stuff. But, I mean, you've made this kind of a centerpiece of your um, political career. How, how did that happen? Absolutely. Um, well, uh, I'll give you a little bit of my background. Well, I'm fortunate enough to um, have had a lot of farming experiences myself. Interestingly, I grew up in Minnesota. And um, my my grandparents were all Scandinavian immigrants, so I somehow had it in my blood. Um, I didn't actually grow up on the family farm. It belonged to my uncle growing up, but they were dairy farmers, and I had a good agricultural sense and thought I was going to go off and do something completely different, but ended up studying at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, um, thinking I'd go into environmental issues, but I really got um, very interested in organic farming. So I actually had great teachers, graduated with a background in organic farming and started my first farm in the early 70s selling milk, eggs, and vegetables right off the farm. Um, and, uh, you know, have had the opportunity over the years uh, both to run a farm, then to serve in the state legislature and be on a agriculture committee. And today I'm back in the farming business. On the side, we run a, another organic farm and a restaurant um, that serves our customers um, uh, our organic produce, and, and it's called Nebo Lodge. And so we, um, we we continue to understand, you know, from the dirt what the operation looks like and what the challenges are, but I'm also lucky enough to serve on an agricultural committee and and see, you know, what the policy disconnect is on the other side. And it seems to be quite profound. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, before, we're going to take a little quick break uh, between this question and the next one, but um, do you see a private sector uh, that's interested in funding um, the agricultural community to increase their reach into local towns and cities. And I guess like, what I'm asking about is venture capitalism. Why are we not seeing more venture capitalists who are taking advantage of this, you know, huge consumer interest and this growth in the agricultural field and um, and funding some of the things that we need, like processing uh, centers, uh, aggregation warehouses and the like? What what do you think is the um, what, what's your sense of the pulse on that issue? 
Well, I think one way to gauge it is to say that, you know, the big industrial companies actually see the uh, tremendous interest that is out there on organic and naturally grown food. And if you look, um, all of the big food companies are buying up all the little brands. The things that you go to the store and uh, look for all the time may well be owned by an agricultural giant because they see this is where all the market growth is right now. Even a store like Walmart, where I know many people don't shop, has actually decided that it wants to become one of the leaders in organic food sales in the country. They're already the largest retailer of food in this country. Mm-hmm. Now, we may not like all their practices, and I'm very concerned that they're going to procure these organic foods in China, but they wouldn't even be trying to market organic foods if they didn't know that that's where the market growth is. So what's interesting is it's a market that's expanding. We could use a lot more support, I think, on the level of helping small local regional systems. And I would say the funding behind that, the philanthropy, the investors are just starting to catch on to how to go about making those connections with the the entrepreneurial businesses that are forming out there with the people who have money to put into them. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting is that I, you know, I, I agree with you. The the big companies, are, for instance, Cashy brand, um, you know, cereal, which was you know one of the big organic cereals in the begin, you know, ten years ago, was then quickly acquired by Kellogg's. I mean, that's the most obvious example. And then they roll out you know dozens and dozens of prog- products raising using that brand, and um, and then you know. As you pointed out, you have to worry about what what actually are the practices or where are they sourcing their ingredients from. And I, you know, I think that's very troubling about um, having uh, big agriculture understand where the interest is and then and then going about uh, business as usual, essentially, uh, whilst maintaining these labels. I, I, it's it's I think a very naughty problem that we um, that will require some kind of. I don't know what, legislation of some sort to sort of separate the men from the boys, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take a quick break here. Jack's going to bring the music up. We'll come right down and then um, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about fish. Great. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest on the phone today is Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, the Democrat from the great state of Maine. I'm a fellow New Englander, Shelley, so I um, really appreciate your... <laughs> oh, good. What, what state are you from? I'm from Rhode Island. Great. Um, now, fish, of course, is a major part of Maine's economy, and um, I wondered if your Local Food, Farms, and Jobs Act uh, included the fisheries. Well, um, one of the challenges is that um, the way legislative jurisdiction goes, uh, the Agriculture Committee really has no jurisdiction over fisheries, um, So, except in a couple of areas where they overlap around aquaculture. So we don't have a lot of provisions in our bill that deal with people's, um, also their interest in buying um, sustainably raised fish or locally grown um, caught, locally caught fish. Um, but we do, uh, in one provision of the bill, change... Um, change uh, some of the definitions so that um, an FSA, which we actually have uh, one or maybe more in Maine, which is a, you know, like it's like a CSA, so you buy a share 
um, with a group of fishermen and they return to you um, a certain, you know, catch of fish every week, um, they can be um, supported and marketed through the bill. So we are trying to go after that, and we know that there's a lot of interest in that. Um, but fisheries policy generally is regulated um, in a whole different, you know, committee of Congress. Oh, I see. I didn't realize that, although I suppose I should have. Um, but it is an interesting uh, issue. For once, one of the pe- think people that I sp- have spoken to in, co- in the course of writing an article about the fisheries right now, which I'm doing for a trade magazine, <clears throat> is um, a guy who's running a company in Rhode Island. And, of course, Rhode Island is another state that's very dependent on fish um, mm-hmm. economically. And he said to me, you know, the thing that really bugs me about what's happening in the fish business is that we, we catch all this great wild-caught fish in, you know, Rhode Island waters or, or immediately surrounding Rhode Island, and yet it, it goes somewhere else. It doesn't stay in the state. And I suspect that in Maine that's especially true, what with your lobster business and with, you know, cod and all of the other fish that are sort of indigenous to the northern coastal waters. So are there programs that are helping you keep more fish in Maine? And are there, I mean, aside from these CSAs or FSAs, I think that's a great program. But, like, for instance, are schools buying locally from from fisheries? Um, I do think that the fishermen are attempting to find ways uh, to go about doing this. I mean, we, um, I, I think there's a fair amount of the fish that's caught in Maine that does get um, sold to the local stores. I mean, we, we're, we have a big fishing industry, and people like to eat, you know, locally grown fish, and our restaurants like to serve it. So I think that network has actually traditionally been pretty good for that. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, fishermen, I think, are trying to start these entities um, like the Port, Port Collide fishermen who have this FSA. You can buy a share, and whatever they're catching that week, um, you know, you get to take home. And they they make the connection directly from the fisherman to the consumer. And in that process, the fishermen get better paid than selling at the lowest rate, you know, to another distributor. There's a couple of other organizations, the Calendar Islands fishermen, who have actually taken it a step further. They're, they are doing... Um, sales directly to uh, buying co-ops and um, schools, but they're also setting up their own processing facility so that um, while some of their processed foods um, might be um, sold, you know, out of state through the internet or you know online as a gift, um, it also means though that the fishermen have a say, a say in you know whether they're making lobster pot pie or shrimp pizza or you know some some food items that they've developed. Um, that then they get a return on the profit, which is, you know, also what's happening in the farming movement where um, a lot of farmers want to get into the value-added part of the business so that they can, you know, you can make more selling a pickle than you can a cucumber, and you can make more making your own pasta off the farm, I mean, your own pesto off the farm with extra basil or those kinds of things, um, goat cheese from your goat's milk. Those are things that have made it possible for small farmers, just like small fishermen, um, to make a better living rather than selling at the cheapest price to whoever will take it off your hands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, in the course of my research for this article, it's been really interesting to see how that chain, the traditional chain of, you know, off the boat to a processor who then takes it to an auction. Who that, I mean, you know, I don't, how a fisherman actually ever makes money off of that, you know, it, it, it explains a lot about why the fishing communities have uh, dwindled so tremendously in the last 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, do you guys, in Rhode Island, I know, and in Connecticut, there's uh, there are dairy co-ops. And I was wondering if Maine is developing co-ops uh, of that sort, where you, I think you just mentioned that there were some fishermen who were doing that. But are your farmers also doing that, where they, they pool their crops and then thus can can uh, leverage bigger, bo- or bigger, people can buy larger quantities from them so that they can work within a bigger system? Well, we definitely have dairy co-ops, and I think um, 
I think fishermen, I mean farmers are exploring um, this model. We have a, a, a wonderful organic milk company which sells throughout New England called um, Moo Organic Milk, and that's a group of farmers who actually were, were selling organic milk to one of the bigger companies, lost their contract, and decided to go into business, you know, for themselves. And they have a cooperative arrangement um, that, you know, is actually packaged into their own um, containers. I think you can get it in Whole Foods around New England. And, um, you know, it's organically raised, not ultra-pasteurized. It's got a picture of the farmer on the side. And they are a great model for what other farmers in, in other parts of the state are attempting to do. And I actually think um, you can see that the um, the farming, the sort of new uh, farming businesses are maturing because um, one of the things that's going on is that uh, farmers themselves are looking for more distribution network for their produce. There's an organization called Crown of Maine that buys produce from farmers and gets it um, both distributed through Maine and beyond, um, and they are expanding their, their facilities and some of their processing capacity. And, and this is really a reflection of the fact that farmers have kind of saturated the market of their own farm stand and their local um, farmer's market, There's, they're all filling up, which is great, and customers are showing up, but, you know, people want to keep growing or new farms want to come in, and so people are getting very creative, I think, about both making products out of their, um, their uh, you know, locally grown produce and also looking for a bigger range of distribution. Um, you know, you look at a market like New York City, Maine is... Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in a good place to be attached to the food belt because there are so many consumers along the eastern seaboard from, you know, Maine down to New York and beyond. Sure. I, you know, what, what I'm taking away from this conversation is that is that broadline distributors, the sort of traditional channels, are, are definitely going to, must be feeling some impact from all of these sort of little trickling, you know, people coming together and, and forming their own networks um, and largely at the expense of people like Cisco or National Foods or whatever. Um, I think that's a really interesting trend and something that has definitely um, grown exponentially just in the last two or three years since I've been started doing these programs and started paying attention to this stuff. Um, I'm going to take another quick 30-second uh, break, and then we're going to come back and talk about um, all of this stuff on a national level as opposed to regional. Thanks, Great. Jelly. So stay on the line. back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me today is uh, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree from the great state of Maine. And um, Congresswoman Pingree has been very involved in, um, for one thing, uh, Department of Agriculture. Um, what do you call those little, your legislative group there? You're on a USDA committee. Um, is that what they call it? Just a committee? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm on the... Um I'm on the Agriculture Committee in the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. and we're working on the reauthorization of the Farm Bill. So yeah. we've written a title to the Farm Bill, which is like a section. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so since we're going to take this conversation onto a more national level, since you're a, a national representative now, how much, if any, of the change from previous policies, policies that supported industrial-scale agriculture are we likely to see in the 2012 Farm Bill? Do you think that, I mean, I know from many sources that there is going to be no more money added to the Farm Bill. So how are we going to make some of the changes that you and I have just been talking about on the local and regional level? Well, 
Well, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in Congress, as I'm sure you're well aware, and uh, we have a mandate to cut uh, the budget deficit, and there are those people who are ready to give up some of the farm subsidies, which it's about time, you know, giving direct payments to people who just loan own land, aren't necessarily even growing crops on them, or direct payments and subsidies to corn and other crops that are already highly priced. Um, so a complete waste of the taxpayer money. I think people know um, in the ag sector that some of that has to come to the end. The danger is um, as we scoop that money out of those programs and fight the fight to discontinue them, we don't want them all to just go into the black hole of the budget deficit. We want some of them to be re-resourced into those things that will help uh, a new you know, modern agricultural movement that fits what people, consumers, and farmers and communities want today. So we got a real fight going on both um, to take those agricultural subsidies out of places we don't need them, which you can imagine um, the big commodity producers don't want to get up in the first place. Yes. And then the second fight is to direct them to those places where we can really enhance um, a healthy food movement in our country. What about um, things like distribution and processing systems? Do you think you'll be able to take money, uh, again, from, say, commodity subsidies or other programs that have at this point are outdated or outmoded and move that into actually building things like processing facilities regionally or slaughterhouses in a regional level and, you know, things like that that will really um, boost the local farm communities? Absolutely. I mean, that is, um, that's what we wrote into our title of the bill. There is, a, you know, there's actually a limited amount of money that goes to that today. Mm-hmm. Um, we have things called value-added producer grants, which make it easier for a farmer um, to build, say, a small goat dairy on their farm or put hoop houses over their vegetables to have a longer growing season. We do have money available for infrastructure projects. It's just minuscule. I can't begin to describe to you how tiny it is compared to what we, we now spend um, on huge subsidies in this country. So there, there needs to be a, a much more significant shifting of resources. And again, um, I think given, you know, it's one of those one of those terrible political realities is when something becomes popular, like buying from your local food um, retailer, your local farmer's market, um, buying directly off the farm, um, the big guys start to see it, and they want to nip it in the bud. They say, hey, we already set up a distribution you know, um, you know, the whole system here. We want to send you a green tomato that turns ripe in three weeks, and you know you can still bounce it on the floor when you get it home. Um, and we don't want you diverting your money to the quote-unquote locally grown. So we've already had our share of skirmishes on these issues. Even the language that the USDA use on helping you to know your local farmer, we've had people, uh, you know, fighting to take that language out of use. You know, just because they're saying there's no real science in local food. You know, this is America. We grow tomatoes in Florida, and we put them on a truck, and we drive them around, and that's that's all American, you know. And I say, wait a minute, you know, patriotism used to be the family farm and supporting communities and, you know, healthy families that grew up on farms and, you know, extended families who supported them. That's that's America. So we, we got a real fight going on around it, but I, I still say this is the time to make these changes because consumers and political advocates see for all the right reasons, including the long-term health of our environment and the amount of, you know, waste that goes on in industrial food systems, 
um, this is the right thing to be doing. No question about it. But I, I you know, I'm going to stop for a second and say, what do they mean? There's no science backing this up. I mean, the science is absolutely 100% out there that shows that, um, you know, locally sourced crops are definitely inherently more nutritious. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, whose idea I'm, sure, is that? I'm sure you've turned on C-SPAN <laughs> and you've met some of my colleagues, at least, uh, you know, uh, on the air. And these are the very same people who tell us that there's really no global warming, that yes. the uh, climate change that's going on or the excess carbon environment will never do us any harm. And I literally had an argument one night on the floor with someone who wanted to um, strip all the funding that would go to more research on local agriculture and these agricultural systems because they said, you know, there is no scientific fact that says it's better to grow food locally. And, you know, even if it wasn't science, it's good economics. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, forget the science for a second. Economically, there's, you know, there's a whole community, a huge, vast swath of the American population, although certainly less than it was uh, 50 years ago, but still a very viable But it's a job still, you know. It's every a young job. person today who wants to go back and either take over the family farm or start a farm or, you know, build a, a goat dairy or all the things that young people are, are increasingly interested in doing. Um, you know, in Maine, we have, a, we have a great statistic. The average age of our farmer is going down. I mean, that's a trend that hasn't been going that way in our country for decades. And that just says that there are more and more young people who want to, you know, see the entrepreneurship and the vitality. They want to live in rural communities. They want to raise their family in places that they feel are safe and get to know their neighbors. And even if they don't, if you're in the heart of New York City, um, you still want to buy your food from somebody you know is growing it in a healthy way. You know, that I, I guess we have to wrap this up, unfortunately, but um, I have one last, uh, you know, deep question for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is, what do you think is the most important aspect to advocate for in the 2012 Farm Bill? And how many of your colleagues do you expect will share your views? Well, I hope that people will check to see if their member of Congress has signed on to our bill, the Local uh, Food, Farms, and Jobs Act. I have to say we're thrilled. We already have 62 members of Congress, which is a high number um, for sort of an obscure issue in some people's minds. But I think it shows that um, there's a huge cross-section of, of uh Congress people who are aware that there's a farmer's market or a local food interest or growing number of farms in their community. Um, And we think this shows a great opportunity for people to get into an issue um, and say, you know, that's where I want to make a change. The Farm Bill is a big, long, complex bill, and it's hard to pick those, you know, little sections to go after. And this is a comprehensive title that covers really virtually everything we've been talking about today. Sounds great. Well, I urge people to go to your website, which is uh, for Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, and Shelley is C-H-E-L-L-I-E and P-I-N-G-R-E-E. And you can, you know, folks can read exactly what you put into that um, language and into that piece of legislation. And uh, I hope people will follow your career. I mean, I, I think you're a, just a, a, a shining light in a, in a swamp of... of <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't. Words fail me, frankly. I mean, you know, what you were saying before about, you know, just the denial of global warming and the fact that, you know, a rock hard tomato is considered the, the, the gold standard. I mean, it's just it's beyond how these people can look at one another and say it in a straight face and and look at their voters and say with a straight face that this is the best way for the country to go forward. Um, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the show today, and I hope you'll be a guest again. This has been really, really interesting. And, oh, great. Um, many, many thanks for your time, and I look thanks. forward to staying in touch. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Thanks for doing what you're doing and, uh, you. and uh, for being interested in what's such an important topic. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>